0: The Democrat party has time after time and irrevocably labeled itself as the party which stands for government of, by, and for communist crooks and cronies.
1: Imagine that something you did in your 20s, something completely legal, would haunt you for the rest of your life, and then for years after your death. Imagine that the only reason people knew about it is because you were being honest and told the truth. Imagine that this something you had no control over would lead your own government to question your loyalty. This actually happened to one man. His name was Irving Adler. On this episode of Muck Rock, contributor Zach Sampson gives us a glimpse of how the U.S. government came to view this man with suspicion. It's a story that details American life during the first Red Scare. A story that tells the meaning of loyalty and the problems of paranoia. A story of how one federal interrogation that would follow this man beyond the end of his days. And quite honestly, it's a story we didn't ever intend to tell, or even to ask for. I'm Michael Morrissey. This is Muck Rock. Keep listening.
0: Irving Adler had no idea what his name had in store for him when he came into the world during the spring of 1913. He had no idea it would lead to a government interrogation. He grew up in New York City. He waited tables. He worked as a bookkeeper. He studied for a degree. He was a part-time clerk at the U.S. Post Office in New York City. By all accounts, he was an upstanding kid. But there was another Irving, too. For the exact same year Irving Adler came into being, another Irving Adler was born as well. This second Irving Adler was also born and raised in New York City. But this second Irving Adler went on to lead a vastly different life. He was fired from a teaching job in the New York City public school system for refusing to answer questions about his alleged ties to the Communist Party. He sued, along with several others, to overturn New York's infamous Feinberg Law. This antiquated law made it illegal for teachers to participate in subversive organizations. Due to Adler's last name being the first alphabetically of all the plaintiffs, the lawsuit came to be known as Adler v. Board of Education. It made noise. This lawsuit went all the way to the Supreme Court. Adler lost. The court found the law constitutional. But this is moving too far, too fast. So let's get back to our Irving Adler, the any man. The problems of his shared name would first crop up in 1942. It brought him into an interrogation room before two government agents and a stenographer recording his every word. And that's where our story picks up. Adler left his job at the post office and went on to work for the war production board. It was a government agency that oversaw a production of goods for World War II. And this is when the officials first came knocking. They had questions Was the man before them who he claimed to be, or was he a registered communist? What follows is a verbatim interview they had with Irving Adler. Do you
2: swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? I do. What is your name? Irving Adler. Where do you live? 315 George Mason Drive, Arlington, Virginia. Where are you employed? War Production Board. Mr. Adler, in what cities have you lived during the last 10 years? New York City. Going backward at 1645 Grand Concourse, 1375 Teller Avenue, 2020 Grand Avenue, 214 Echo Place, 1455 Walton Avenue, 1375 Teller Avenue, 1394 Clay Avenue. Prior to that, I don't remember exactly but I think it was Webster at 171st Street and then somewhere in St. Paul Place. Before that, I was at the Jewish maternity hospital where I was born. Have you ever lived at 2081 North Avenue in the Bronx? No. Do you have any relatives living at this address? No. Did you ever use this as a mailing address? No. Can you associate this address with any persons you know? No. Is that in a neighborhood where you previously lived? Yes. Do you know anyone in that area by the name of Irving Adler other than yourself? No. Have you ever registered as a voter under the Communist Party? No. Did you sign a Communist Party elections petition in 1936? No. Have you ever contributed any money to any publication? Yes. I was a subscriber to the New Masses and to Friday for a few months. I also subscribed to the Saturday Evening Post and Colliers. Are you a member of the Workman Circle? I was never a member, but my father and I worked up there for three summers. What is your opinion of that organization? It's a fraternal organization for Jewish workmen and has slightly socialistic tendencies. It's affiliated with the Jewish newspaper, The Forward, which is one of those organs of the Socialist Party. May, may I retract that statement about being a member of the workmen's circle? I, I don't recall the date, but I remember that for no more than a week or two, my father's branch was forming a young circle, which is the junior organization for the workmen's circle. I received a medical examination, was inducted, But I can't remember if I paid any dues. Do you consider the workmen's circle a questionable group from the standpoint of loyalty? No. Has it ever been questioned publicly that you know about? No. What are their activities other than fraternal? I'm not quite certain what you mean, but they do conduct a series of Jewish educational systems, or rather schools. My mother is a trustee in one of the schools. Any propaganda come from there? Are any promotional activities from the standpoint of distributing literature regarding the part Russia is playing in this war? No. Can I go back and explain something? The workmen's circle is mostly made up of people who are immigrants, and, and usually by districts. My people come from Pinsk, and they got a book entitled A Thousand Years Pinsk. That's the extent that I know. Did you live with your family until you came here? I moved in May or June, 1940. My wife and I took an apartment. When did you subscribe to the new masses and Friday? During the Spanish War in 1936. Was there any reason for taking these magazines? There was a particular setup at the Totem Lodge where I worked. That was during the summers. Half the boys for one side during the Spanish Civil War and half were for the other. I was on the loyalist side. There was a lot of talk and I started to subscribe to the magazines. Did you enter any activities for the loyalist cause? I made some contributions, not more than a dollar or so at one time. Did you participate in the collection of funds for the group? No. We're you cognizant of the basic cause behind the loyalist issue? I'm, I'm not so sure what you mean by that. Wouldn't you say that from a political standpoint it was really fascism against communism? I thought it was the democratic faction fighting to set up a republic. Did you get that idea from the new masses or from Friday? I don't believe Friday was out at the time, but... The New Masses was definitely a communist magazine. Do you think that they tried to compare communism with democracy? I think they tried. Do you continue to believe that it was a democratic fight against Nazism? I, I was a little mixed up at the time. I didn't know whether it was democratic or communistic. How old were you at the time? 24. That is 23 and 24. Do you belong to any organizations other than religious, fraternal, or labor? No. I was a member of the Junior Honorary Society at City College. Were you secretary to the New York Teachers Anti-War Committee? I was not. Are you familiar with that group? No. Does this name mean anything to you, Nurkowitz? No. Have you ever been involved in any city in a bank concerning the kiting of checks? No. Do you have any relatives living in Russia today? My mother's two sisters and their husbands and children, my grandmother corresponds with them, and sometimes my mother inserts a letter with my grandmother's, I I don't think they have heard from them in quite a while. I don't receive any propaganda from any foreign source. Have you ever been approached for information about your work? No. What we want you to do, if you're ever approached for information with the threat of harm from the above relatives, is to immediately notify your supervisor and this office. I will certainly do that. Frankly, my grandmother is close to 70 and is pretty worried about her two daughters. We have been in the habit of sending clothing, but we have not heard from them in over a year. I'm not in a position to say what will or will not happen under present circumstances. I don't think anything is out of the realm of possibility. I merely put you on notice in the event that any such situation should arise. With reference to the more pertinent factors of our discussion, is there anything further you would care to add for the record? None at all except that I did not notify my draft board. My wife isn't working. Several of the questions were entirely remote from my living in New York. The conversation here between us will be transcribed, and when that is done, I would like to have you read it, make any corrections you will, and sign it. I'll be glad to.
0: Adler was obviously spooked by the interview. Unfortunately, his honesty about subscribing to the left-leaning magazines, Friday, and New Masses would be the reason the FBI would check his loyalties once more. This time, with even more thoroughness. Several years passed, and Irving Adler continued his apparently average life as a government employee. He worked as an army officer at Tilton General Hospital in Fort Dix, New Jersey. Adler's supervising colonel held him in high regard. In the late 1940s, he was appointed to a federal post as an administrative assistant in the U.S. Air Force. And once again, his name would cause him added problems. As a federal employee, he was subject to a loyalty investigation. That was kicked up to a full investigation by the FBI because of suspicions tied to his old magazine subscriptions. Agents interviewed dozens of his associates from San Antonio to St. Louis, all stated that Irving Adler was a loyal and patriotic American citizen. They interviewed Arthur Sanders, a man from Virginia who had worked with Adler on the war production board in 1942. According to the FBI records, he said that Adler was an innocent man. He said that he had numerous contacts with Adler until the appointee entered military service and was acquainted with him socially to a slight extent during that period, but that to the best of his knowledge, Adler is completely loyal to the government and that he has never had any reason to think otherwise. He stated that he did not know of any organizations to which Adler belongs. The FBI investigation went on for weeks. There were form letters from J. Edgar Hoover urging the field offices to speed up the process. Eventually, the FBI released its final determination on Irving Adler's loyalty to America, pointing out one particularly definitive piece of information found in his favor. By letter dated June 13, 1949, Washington Field Office advised the ONI records reflect that one Irving Adler, 42nd Street, Long Island City, New York, appears on a list of persons who are in varying degrees associated or sympathetic with the CP. This Irving Adler is apparently not identical with the appointee, since there is no indication that he ever resided in Long Island City. For the second time, Irving Adler was scrutinized, in part because of his name. His file ends in 1949. We never intended to tell you the story of this Irving Adler. In truth, we never knew he even existed. But when the second Irving Adler died in September of 2012, we sent in a FOIA request for his FBI file, because the second Irving Adler, the alleged communist sympathizer, became a renowned activist and author. Instead, the FBI sent us the file of Irving Adler, the serviceman. The only reason we know so much about him is because of how thoroughly the FBI investigated Americans during the Red Scare. And history repeated itself once more.
1: Our story today came from Muckrock contributor Zach Sampson and FBI statements made by Irving Adler in the Investigations Office on June 23, 1942. Since receiving the documents, Muckrock notified the FBI of the error. We asked that any additional investigations the Bureau conducted about Irving Adler, the teacher, be sent over. This time, we included his birth date and the date of his death. But the FBI got back to us and said they had done a thorough search. And no FBI files, the ones on the teacher, the ones that sparked all these investigations, actually existed. We don't know if they were lost, never made, or maybe they were destroyed during archival cleanup. Oh, and the Supreme Court also overturned its Adler ruling in 1967 and found the Feinberg Law unconstitutional. Additional sourcing for the story came from The New York Times, Ralph Blumenthal, and Dennis Avesi. It was edited by Bradley Campbell and produced by Dean Russell and Paul Vikas. All the stories you hear on Muckrock are made possible by the Freedom of Information Act. Want to file a public records request on your own? Head to our website, muckrock.com. To date, Muckrock has filed 5,717 Freedom of Information requests, allowing more than 145,171 pages of public documents into the public eye. I'm Michael Morrissey. This is Muckrock. Thanks for listening.